Well, certainly it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I've come down with my daughter Evie and my wife Erin and Adelaide and Henry are involved up at Calvary Bible Church this morning, so they're not with us. And our youngest, William, is, of course, needing full-time care. He is three, and um, all of three, so that's exciting for us. Um, Some of you probably haven't had a chance to meet him, but uh, we praise God for him. Well, it is uh, a joy to be with you. Um, I know some of you well, some of you by face, and some of you I have yet to meet, but it, it's a, certainly a, a joy to be able to hear, to be here to serve you and to attend to God's word together and to hear him speak to us. This morning, I'd like to be giving our attention to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. As you're turning there, Ephesians 5 and verse 15, um, we'll read that and I'll pray and then, of course, we'll get into the text. So Ephesians 5 and verse 15. It's always an odd thing. Okay, I'm going to come in one sermon. What do we, what do we, where do we land and how do we give that context? So this morning we'll be spending some time looking at the context and then the passage before us. So Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, please give your attention to God's word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not a God far off, hidden. But you are a God who has come close to us in Christ by your Spirit. And you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you for your word, that today we might meditate on your word, what you have to say through your revelation. And even that, not some distant message, but a message present to us. Give us understanding. Help us to have insight into its application to our lives. May there be a responsiveness. This morning, may we taste of the ministry of your spirit. And we pray this In the name of Christ, amen. So this passage before us, chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, um, is a passage, of course, that comes in the context of the book of Ephesians and the the nearer context here in chapters 4 and 5. So before we spend time looking at the passage itself, I'd like to spend some time looking at the context of Ephesians, the nearer context, to help us understand what we're looking at here in this passage. So firstly, the passage in broader context. What's happening in the book of Ephesians? Well, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul leads us to reflect on the glorious grace of God in Christ. And then in chapter 4, there's this move to exhort the saints to live in a way that matches up to the reality 
of being made new in Christ. Or to state it another way, our Heavenly Father here is instructing us about the nature of our salvation and our sanctification. So if someone were to come up to me and say, Rodney, would you give me the main theme of Ephesians? I would say, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you do that with me for a minute, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a great summary of the book as a whole. I'd just like to read that. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So verses 8 and 9, a summary of the first three chapters. God's glorious redeeming grace, he has saved us. Verse 10, a summary of chapters 4 through 6. And where Paul says here at the end of chapter 10 that we should walk in them, he picks up on this idea of walking in good works by repeating the word walk six times as we read through chapters 4 and 5. And the passage before us today, Ephesians 5 verse 15, is the last of these references or last of the occurrences of walk. So because of that, what I'd like to do now is look at the nearer context, looking in chapter 4 and looking at the occurrences of walk through these two chapters. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, we read here that Paul is exhorting the saints to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Thinking back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, thinking about the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. This walking worthy, walking in a manner that matches up to the reality of the gospel work, of the transformation of grace within. If you look now at Ephesians 4 and verse 17, Paul now contrasts walking worthy with unworthy walking. Literally, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Then if you look down in chapter 5 in verse 2, where we are here exhorted to walk in love as Christ loved us. Chapter 5 in verse 8, walk as children of light. And now in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Now what I want you to see um, just in this brief survey, and what I want you to note here is Paul is not jumping from topic to topic. This theme of walk should clue us in that, he, that there's a connection in his thinking. And he's giving instruction with one focus. What's that focus? How God's children are to grow and mature to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That our lives would match up with the reality of our salvation that we would walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. So Paul is clearly connecting what he says back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 here in this passage. And with these series of walking, he's giving us 
different perspectives, different facets of the multifaceted reality of being made new in Christ. So as we look at this passage this morning, Paul is not shifting his focus to something new. He's bringing together thoughts that he's been developing in chapters 4 and 5, and even back into the early chapters of the book of Ephesians. And as he comes now in verse 15, we see him employing this category of wisdom to further, un- to further develop this understanding of what it is to walk worthy, what it is to live as saints. Now, this emphasis of wisdom is made clear in the phrasing that Paul uses here. So look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 17, do not be foolish. Verse 18, he quotes from Proverbs 23, 31, do not be drunk with wine. So we see here Paul is is thinking about the category of wisdom as it relates to our walk as believers. The category of wisdom as it connects to the process of sanctification. In fact, this thought, this concern for wisdom is something he mentioned way back in the beginning of the book. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 16, he records his prayer for the saints, an expression of his burden for the saints. And look at how he begins in Ephesians 1.16. He's, he's praying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my prayers verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So as you look here in Ephesians 5.15, where Paul is talking about wisdom, it's not that he's been writing Ephesians and he goes, oh, wisdom. I should talk about wisdom a little. No, when he's talking here about wisdom, this is an outflow of his concerns and his thinking right from the beginning of the book. So Paul has this focus on wisdom, I would say a theme of wisdom in these verses 15 through 21. And so from that, I get my outline for this morning. This morning, a three-point outline, wisdom pursues watchfulness, wisdom pursues understanding and wisdom pursues fullness. So firstly, wisdom pursues watchfulness. Verses 15 through 16. Paul begins, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as wise, but as, not as unwise, but as wise. There's a, a watchfulness that goes with wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk. I just want to pause here because we have a truckload of application and we've just read the first phrase of this passage. Walk carefully. Be watchful. We don't grow in Christ-likeness. We don't grow in wisdom accidentally or passively. The walk of the saints, the the life of the saint is one which is characterized by careful intentionality, watchfulness. And we see this um, 
down a little further where he talks about um, making the best use of time, literally to buy up or to redeem the time. I like the NET translation here, taking advantage of every opportunity. That is to say, there are no mutually, uh, uh, sorry, not mutually, there are no morally neutral times in our lives. There's not a time in our life where we can check out being careful or being wise. We're to walk with carefulness. There's to be a spiritual watchfulness in every period of our life. Even after a time of intensity, when we're seeking refreshment, our refreshment is to be something characterized by a wisdom by a watchfulness. Now, it's easy, and I'm sure you can all identify this, it's easy for us to get up in the morning, charge into the day, kind of like you're on autopilot, and you careen through the day being bounced around by various circumstances, relationships, and situations, and you get to the end of the day and you wonder what happened. It's felt like the day has happened to you, that you've been pushed around by the day, You've experienced being controlled, as it were, by the day, rather than living with self-control or watchfulness or alertness as you've gone through the day. Or maybe you've experienced the weariness of life and you're like, I just want to relax. And so you transition from intensity mode to relax mode. And then before you know it, you're actually in indulgence mode and something has happened so there's this call for a carefulness a watchfulness a thoughtful discerning in how we live that is to what that is to characterize the believer that is a path of wisdom that is what it is like to live worthy of the gospel There is to be this intentionality and there's an urgency as well that goes along with this. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 16. The days are evil. You will experience opposition to a life of holiness. Paul picks up on this in chapter 6 and verse 13. If you turn there, chapter 6 and verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We're to be aware of spiritual opposition. You can't draw a truce with Satan. He doesn't go on vacation. Fleshly temptation doesn't go on vacation. That requires a spiritual watchfulness, a carefulness. So the first point that we see in verses 15 and 16 is that wisdom pursues watchfulness. And I use this word pursues in this point because it gives the orientation of you don't actually arrive. Watchfulness is a persistent virtue. It's a growing aspect of our lives. Wisdom pursues this alertness, this carefulness, this watchfulness. But secondly, in verse 17, wisdom pursues understanding. 
Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's not only foolish to thoughtlessly and passively go through the day. It's foolish to make no effort to understand the nature and the will of God. So there's this command. Understand what the will of the Lord is. I don't know what verse you go to when you think about the priority that Christians should have to meditate on God's word. But here is a very clear command about that very thing. This is a command to prioritize the study and the meditation upon God's word. Now, I'm not sure what kind of church context you've been in or how you've heard this phrase used. Some tend to read this phrase, the will of the Lord, as having to do with particular decisions of life. I don't think that's an accurate reading of the verse. It's Paul is not saying here, okay, this is not the way to read it. Paul is not saying, seek to figure out God's particular individual plan for your life. Rather, Paul's picking up a theme that he's been concerned with throughout the whole of the book of Ephesians. He's been giving much instruction about God's purposes, God's will, God's plan. If you just go back to um, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the evidence of God's will for us. He willed to bless us with every spiritual blessing. If you go to chapter 3 and verse 20, what is God's will? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. What's God's will? That he would be glorified. How is he glorified? Through the, through the fruit of his power at work in the saints. This is the will of the Lord. So here, as we look in Ephesians 5 and verse 17, what is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is that he be glorified through his church as the saints increasingly reflect the person of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And, and so you might say, what is the will of the Lord? Ephesians. Understand Ephesians. Understand the truth of the gospel, the nature of Christ, the work of the Spirit. This is the will of God that we are to understand. So here is this call to the saints, to each one of you, not only to be careful and watchful, but to give yourself to the understanding of the will of God. And along with the the observations we made in verses 15 and 16, you don't accidentally get understanding. You don't accidentally become an engineer or a doctor or an artist or a musician. You don't accidentally get good at baking cakes or sewing. It comes through a process of application, of reflection, of instruction, 
of wrestling, of failure and correction. We know this in every aspect of our life and so too with the Christian life. If we're to be maturing in the faith, we must be giving ourselves, applying ourselves with energy, with time priority, with life priority to the understanding of the will of the Lord. And it's not like we're applying ourselves to something that's boring or uninteresting or irrelevant. We are applying ourselves to the knowledge of the glorious eternal God. Now, that's motivation. That's all the motivation we should need, right? But we know as Christians, we need constantly this reminder, pursue an understanding of the will of God. It's easy to invest lots of time watching the news to find out the to understand the latest event, the latest situation. It's easy to maybe watch some documentaries to understand some curious thing about nature or history. But oh, to give ourselves to the understanding of the will of God. Wisdom pursues this. Wisdom pursues understanding. Well, my third point, looking at verses 18 to 21, is that wisdom pursues fullness. And by nature of the verses we're looking at here, we'll be spending a little more time on this third point. But Paul is continuing on with this uh, focus on wisdom. And we see this by his quotation of a proverb, do not get drunk with wine. Now, I want you to pause here for a moment. Not only is Paul just quoting from Proverbs. But he is using this verse, this way, in this context, with a particular strategy. There's an implied reminder here to the saints. If you're to grow in wisdom, there's a big chunk of Scripture that is necessary for this growth in wisdom. And so he quotes the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a necessary resource. It's a necessary place for us to go if we're to grow as saints, if we're to mature in the faith. So Paul here quotes from a proverb, I think to provoke us to consider the Proverbs in general. He's just not quoting a proverb. He's pointing us to the Proverbs. He quotes this proverb and he quotes the proverb that speaks of the foolishness of drunkenness. And I think in doing this, he's not merely focused on drunkenness, but I think he's pulling drunkenness out as representative of the walk of unrighteousness, of the way of darkness, of the behavior which is characteristic of those who are dead in trespasses and sins. But not only does he quote from the book of Proverbs and thus point us to the value of the book of Proverbs, but he actually speaks proverbially. He quotes from the book of Proverbs and creates a new proverb. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. This is a proverbial saying. Proverbs are succinct 
compact statements behind which there's lots to unpack. And so we need to spend a little time unpacking what Paul is doing here in this proverbial statement. So let me give you um, an expanded translation of the first line of this proverb to help lead us into unpack what he's saying in the second line of the proverb. So first line. This is Rodney's expanded translation. The excessive filling of wine leads to drunkenness and the fullness of all kinds of sin. Implication, of course, don't do it. Second line, be filled by the Spirit. Now, to unpack what Paul is speaking of here when he says be filled by the Spirit, uh, we need to go back and consider how Paul is using filled and spirit in the book of Ephesians. And when we see how he's been thinking on these themes of fullness and spirit, we'll catch on to where to what he's driving at in this compact statement, be filled by the Spirit. So we're going to step out again, look at the broader context of Ephesians, we're going to look at a few places. So follow with me. Uh, Ephesians 1 and verse 22 and 23, we're tracking some of the references to fullness and spirit. So we might kind of zero in on what Paul's saying here. So fullness and spirit. Um, Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is speaking of what God has done in Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Speaking here of the fullness of, of God. And this, this reference to the fullness of God is not something even that Paul is coming up with here. The Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, has these places which speak of God's fullness present in this world. Let me just read one of those passages. Exodus 40 in verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord Build the temple. Here's the picture of God's presence amongst people in his tabernacle. The glory of God fills the temple. Fullness language. Next verse. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Filled, filled, happening twice here in these two verses. There's an emphasis here of the fullness of God, of the filling of God in the tabernacle. And as you look through the Old Testament, you see this recurring theme of God's fullness in his temple. If you go to chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul speaks of Jew and Gentile being created as one new man in Christ. Ephesians 2 and verse 21 We are being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I would submit to you that that what we read in the Old Testament about God's filling of the temple is, is on the front of Paul's mind here. But in the New Testament, 
the coming of Christ, his death and his ascension and the coming of the Spirit, the new people, the one new man in Christ is now the temple, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And our mind should go back to what we learn about in the Old Testament. God's filling the tabernacle. Now, the new creation in Christ, the church, is the temple of God. And God is now dwelling in the temple by His Spirit. And we should think of this fullness language. Look at the end of chapter 3. Paul is praying for the saints in light of this reality that God has made the church as his new temple. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, jump down to verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So we see here how Paul is is thinking of these themes of fullness of God's presence through Christ by the Spirit in this new man, the temple, the church. So as we go back to verse 18 of chapter 5, when Paul here is speaking of fullness, what does he have in mind in light of all that he said so far in the book of Ephesians? When Paul is speaking of fullness here, he's, he's considering God's continuing presence through Christ in the church by the Spirit. That's what this fullness language is picking up here. God being glorified by his presence in the church. So let me do the expanded translation again. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be filled with wine, which leads to drunkenness and the fullness of all kinds of sin. Instead, by the Spirit, be filled with the fullness of God to live a life that reveals the glory of God. So in this compact proverbial saying, be filled by the Spirit, Paul is pulling in all that he said about these things in the book of Ephesians so far. But let's look at this phrase again. Be filled with the Spirit. There's something interesting happening here in the grammar. There's a command to the saints. But the command to the saints is to do something in a passive form. Saints, be filled by the Spirit. It's not fill yourself with the Spirit. It's be at a place to be filled by the Spirit. God is the one who comes in His presence and glory. God is the one who sends His Son. God is the one who sends His Spirit in power to manifest His glory in the church. God is the one. But we are commanded here to be actively passive. Can I say it like that? 
We're to be doing something, but we're to be doing something in such a way that we are receiving. We are being filled by the Spirit. And I think this nature of grammar leads us now to be in a place to consider what Paul is saying in verses 19 through 21. It helps us understand the relationship of verse 18 to verses 19 through 21. And the question that we have as we attend to verses 19 through 21 is, are these the results of being filled or guidance to how to obey the command to be filled. Now, if you were to get a bunch of commentaries on Ephesians off my shelf, um, you would have lots of reading to do about this question as to whether this is the result of being filled or guidance in how to be filled. And I'm not going to go um, spend a whole lot of time discussing the exegetical arguments one way or the other. It seems to me that the best way to take it is that this is guidance in how to obey the command to be filled. And I think this, is, this bears out just in the immediate context. Be filled by the Spirit, the reader would think. How? Um, this is a perplexing instruction, Paul. How do we obey something that's in the passive form? And... As a good teacher, he gives us the clarification, I think, to the natural question that comes up from that. And I think we also get that sense from how Paul um, interacts on these issues throughout the book of Ephesians as well. So here Paul, in verses 19 through 21, is giving us the means by which we obey the command to be filled by the Spirit. Or to say it another way, Paul here is setting forth some means of grace. Some things that we are to pursue in wisdom that we might receive from God that only can come from God. This is not a process of, we might say, quid pro quo. Okay, God, I've sung two hymns today. That should give me three hours of grace. Okay, this is not a mathematical equation. We're not bargaining with God here. That's why the means of grace is such a helpful term. What we do is we pursue these things that God has given us. We pursue them in faith and humility and obedience with the confidence that as we do so, he in his wisdom and his sovereignty and in his love will work in us powerfully by his spirit. So we have here a series of participles guiding us to these means of grace. And we're just going to walk through these for the rest of our time. The first three have a musical connection. There's a musicality about these first three. Where to address one another, how? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Then, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So three instructions here of a means of grace that have a musical connection. The first one is truth put to music directed to one another. 
addressing one another. The second two have to do with songs of worship directed to our Lord and Savior. God, our Father, by the Spirit. So there's this horizontal addressing in music. And there's this vertical towards God singing in worship. Now we can make a few comments about this. Um, My first comment that I want to make here is that I think Paul is doing something here that he did with the quotation from the book of Proverbs. As he's speaking here of the need to address one another and to speak to God in song, there is this inference that the book of Psalms is an integral book of the Old Testament, like all of them, but he's particularly referencing the book of Psalms for our spiritual progress, that we might grow in wisdom and maturity. The book of Psalms is necessary for our sanctification. So Paul is is pointing us in the way he talks, he's referencing the value and the importance of the book of Psalms. Secondly here, obviously, the church is commanded to be musical. Musicality for the church is not optional. Preaching is not optional. Praying is not optional. Reading of scripture is not optional. Singing is not optional. Now, you could know nothing about psychology, physiology, neuroscience, and you will be blessed by obeying God's command. But as we kind of read what researchers find out about the nature of the mind, we know that there is something profound about words to music in how we process, about the connection between information and emotion and expression. Um, So sometimes... um, Various neurological issues um, can be resolved through song. Um, Sometimes people who stutter, if they sing, don't stutter. Um, Sometimes when people have a, a problem in their brain where they can't actually speak, they can sometimes sing their thoughts. Uh, we, we, we don't know all that's, all that's arranged in God's glorious plan of how he has created us as as integrated human beings. But we, we need to trust the Lord here that singing is an important part of spiritual growth. Singing is an important part of integrating truth with life and wisdom. So don't take lightly here the command to be singing to one another and to be singing to the Lord. And maybe you've been in a situation where maybe it's high tension great worry or fear or significant grief and you're trying to grab a verse and your your memory's not working you're experiencing some of the neurological physiological dynamics of of stress and most often though we can pull a song of spiritual truth what a ministry of grace we experience So don't take lightly, saints, this command, this call for us to be musically engaged with truth. Back in chapter 4, Paul uh, talked about instructing one another, speaking the truth in love. And some of that speaking the truth in love is to be musically done. 
addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, next on this list of means of grace or means of being filled by the Spirit is, we see in verse 20, the giving of thanks. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul saw fit to modify the instruction of giving thanks with four statements. Always or constantly, for everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. I just want to make a few brief comments. Firstly, always. There is a habit of life, a behavioral consistency of thankfulness. You wake up, thankfulness. You eat a meal, you give thanks. You go into the day, there's thankfulness. You come to the close of the day, there's thankfulness. You lay your head on your pillow, there's thankfulness. The thankfulness is an aroma, a pervasive aroma in your life. Always or constantly. For everything. Well, does Paul say we should be thankful for pain? Is Paul here recommending that uh, masochism is a virtue? I don't think so. What's What's he getting at here? that there is not any circumstance that's outside of God's sovereign wisdom and control and purposes and planning. And so we can have an attitude of thanks in every circumstance. Why? Because we live before God who we trust, who we love. You know, our our instinct when something bad happens is, why me today, God? Like, why are you singling me out? That's, That's the opposite of thankfulness, right? It's the opposite of trusting his sovereign wisdom. We give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world should we have any reason to be thankful for anything? Oh, God's manifold grace to us in Christ. It's because of Christ that we address God as Father. And so we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To who? The distant, capricious God? No, to God who is near, to God who is close, to God who is is kind, our loving Heavenly Father. I want to make one more comment about giving of thanks here and, and why I think this is an important aspect of means of grace because giving thanks is a fundamental expression of true faith you might say well how can i how can i live by faith give thanks it's like a foundational or fundamental activity of faith and one of the places i think that this stands out, is in Romans chapter 1 as the anti-example. So Romans 1 verse 21, I want you to see how Paul links so tightly unthankfulness with unbelief, with rebellion. Romans 1 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to see, see, see how closely they did not honor him as God or give thanks. It's as if giving thanks is like a, a primary, essential, foundational, fundamental response of faith to God. You know, you go through the day and you might ask yourself, am I living by faith? And you're like, ah, I don't know. It's kind of a hard, an- hard question to answer, isn't it? Well, one of the first places you can go to answer that question is, am I thankful? No, I, I, I'm not. I haven't really ha- had many thankful thoughts. M- maybe that's because I haven't been living by faith or maybe not. But right now I'm going to give myself to this outlook of trusting the Lord. I'm going to give him thanks. I'm going to exercise my faith. So giving of thanks is an important aspect or an important means of grace through which we might receive the fullness of God by his spirit. Finally now, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there's been much debate about this phrase, about its meaning, about its placement in the argument of Paul. So some would look at this this, um, phrase, submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ, and say that this is speaking of absolute mutual submission. And so what Paul says in the following passages is to be read through this idea of absolute mutuality. Now, others would say that we should read this with reference to the following verses. The following verses, which are speaking of submission as defined by roles of hierarchy. There is a third way uh, that we can read this, which is the way I think is preferential. And the third way to read this which I think does justice to what Paul says up to this point and what Paul says after this point. The third way is to see that Paul is summarizing the material from chapter 4 and verse 1. So if you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul Paul is transitioning from his um, discussion of God's work of grace in the gospel to the application. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he immediately goes in as he applies what this means to walk in a way which reflects the reality of internal gospel transformation with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So when Paul in verse 21 of Ephesians 5 talks about submitting to one another, I think he's saying the same thing that he's saying here in the beginning of chapter 4. In chapter 4, to live with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. You're giving up, as it were, your rights as an individual. You are adjusting your behavior, your attitude in light of others. You are, as it were, setting yourself under 
the needs and the situations of your brothers and sisters. That's the nature of humility. There's a submissiveness that is there. So when Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, I think what he's saying is there is a deferential humility as you interact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you understand the nature of your salvation in Christ, you understand that that requires a certain attitude and outlook and behavior towards one another. Glorify the gospel, adorn the gospel in your humility. And brothers and sisters, all of you, without restriction, are to love one another as Christ loves and to submit yourself to one another in those ways. The second reason I think this is the preferential way to take verse 21 is that Paul has repeatedly used the term one another throughout this section. Ephesians 4 verse 22, bearing with one another. Ephesians 4 verse 25, members of one another. Ephesians 4 verse 32, kind to one another, forgiving one another, submitting to one another. So I think the mutuality that I think we should see in verse 21 is just resonating with the way Paul's been using this term throughout chapter 4. I also think this is a theme that we see in the New Testament. Romans 12:10. Love one another, outdo one another in showing honor. What happens when you show honor to someone? You put them above yourself. So if you honor them, as it were, putting them above yourself, where are you placing yourself? As it were, under them. See, the the idea of showing honor has this idea of kind of submitting to one another. Where to to show honor, Romans 12, 10, where to show honor to one another, where to love one another. And as it were, seek to be outdoing, honoring each other. Or to say it in Paul's words from Ephesians 5.21, seek to outdo one another by submitting to one another. Galatians 5.13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What happens when you serve one another? What's the attitude of service? You're putting yourself under You're honoring them as you serve them. So this mutual submission, this love, this humility that is required, this putting each other ahead of ourselves functions along with the hierarchy of roles that we read in Ephesians 5.22 and following. It doesn't exclude those things. In fact, I would submit that rightly understanding Paul's command to submit one another equips you to understand how you function in the roles of hierarchy and that you cannot adequately function in the roles of of, uh, levels of hierarchy that we read in Ephesians 5, 22 and following unless you understand the heart of humility and what it is 
in this general outlook of submitting to one another. I think of what we read in Philippians 2 and 3, where Paul is causing this, pointing the saints to think of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this Christ-like humility, this readiness to submit yourself to one another, is a readiness to renounce your own will for the sake of the spiritual progress, the good of your brother or sister. This, what I would call general mutual submission, can function coherently in differing roles. I think that bears out in Ephesians 5. And just turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 5, which I think is another passage that bears out that mutual submission, rightly understood, coheres with understanding the roles that we see in Scripture. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There's there's the dynamic of hierarchy. The older people in general, and particularly in the church, elders in their place of authority are to be submitted to. But then look what Peter says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think this is a verse that reflects both the call to humility towards one another, this mutual submission, and also the kind of submission that is required of differing hierarchical roles. So back to Ephesians 5.21. So without moving beyond verse 21, I want you to be attuned to to what Paul is calling us to here, And that is that Christ-like love is manifested when we submit to one another. And that this is one of the ways that we will experience the fullness of God. This is one of the means of being filled by the Spirit. We so often look at humility as just a bitter pill to swallow because that's what Christians do. What Paul is calling us here is no. This heart of humility is the pathway to increasingly experiencing the fullness of God in your life and in the church. Well, I don't think these are the only means of grace that we see in Scripture, but these are certainly a set that Paul calls to mind that he's calling the Ephesians to give particular attention to, and because we're in Ephesians today, for us to give our attention to. So saints, this morning, look carefully How you walk, walk in wisdom. And rather than praying in closing, I'd like to read the doxology that we read in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. So just listen to me as I pronounce this blessing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power of at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. And together, God's people say, Amen. Amen.